What's up guys, this is Taking the Field with Stevie Mac, and on today's episode we've got a absolutely loaded episode for you guys today heading into week five in the PLL we're going to discuss the trade between the cannons and the whip snakes that went down earlier this week we'll also talk very briefly about the all-star ballots that came out on Thursday heading into week five in the PLL then we're going to get into the atlas blueprint without Jack Kincan and he's out for the foreseeable future with a groin injury that he suffered in their week four win against the Crow. Then we'll round out the show as we always do with your thoughts heading into week five in the PLL. Plus, I'm going to dissect a little bit the inside lacrosse's week four power rankings at the end of the show. But to jump right into it here on this Thursday edition heading into week five of the podcast, the Cannons traded Drew Simino and Chris Hogan to the Whip Snakes for face-off specialist Kevin Reisman. The move brings in the second new face-off guy in about a week or so for Sean Quirk, who signed Peyton Smith from the player pool prior to week four. That was something that I talked about on a prior episode of the podcast, talking about Smith making his way back into the PLL after spending 2020 with the Redwoods in the championship series, but Simino faced off at 42% for the Cannons on the year and his best game coming against ironically his new team in the Whip Snakes where he had season highs with 13 faceoff wins he went 45% in the game and seven ground balls again all three of those were season highs for Drew Simino now Reisman has taken all of six faceoffs this year behind Joe Nardella going three for six at the stripe with three ground balls so far this season but one of the biggest things from this trade was the fact that a guy like Hogan was involved with it. And this is something where I said it way back during the, the offseason when he signed with the league that he probably wasn't going to do a whole lot if he actually made it into the league. And a lot of you said, hey, if if he does make the league, try to get him on the show, try to talk to him about the decision to play pro lacrosse and and all that. But he was a guy that when he he made that decision and the the announcement was made, I believe it was Adam Schefter that that tweeted about it uh, that night. I said straight up, he's probably not going to play a whole lot. I didn't see a situation where a guy who hasn't played lacrosse in about a decade or so comes in and actually make some meaningful impact to one of these clubs, given the fact that we knew how much talent was already in this league and how much more talent was going to be entering the league through the MLL entry draft with some of the guys like Lyle and, and whoever else, but also through the player pool. Now we're seeing a lot more teams hitting the player pool as well to, to make some roster decisions as we enter the second half of the season now. But Really, when I looked at this decision for Hogan to enter the league and him making the league is that for me, it was more of a, a marketing tool for the league with people, like I said, like Adam Schefter tweeting about him or pro football talk was actually the ones that leaked the news that he had been traded a few days ago. Or even when you look back at week one in uh, 2021, when they went to Gillette Stadium and he wasn't even a part of, if I remember correctly, wasn't even a part of the active roster for the Cannons that weekend when they had two games in week one, but he was still there on the sideline in street clothes doing interviews during the game 
and really promoting the league and and promoting his transition from playing football to lacrosse and everything and and of course the league pumped that out through throughout social media and you had people in the comments a lot of football NFL fans saying Chris Hogan played or excuse me Chris Hogan played lacrosse like nobody even knew that that was who he was before the NFL so really that's what I said going into it that's what it was going to be it was getting more eyes on the league, which is obviously a great thing for the sport and for the league itself. So I'm I'm not knocking what they did. What they did is actually brilliant with with bringing him in and and using him the way that they've been able to do with even having that documentary series about his transition from playing in the NFL to playing in the PLL. So again, I I don't blame the league for what they've done and for how they've handled it how they've handled him and and his decision to play and everything because it's brought more attention to the league. More people outside the sport of lacrosse have been talking about him and talking about the league. But the fact of the matter is that in five games with the Cannons as being a part of their, their 25-man roster, he only played in one of them. And if I'm not mistaken, in the one that he played, he played very sparingly because I believe they dressed three short stick D mids in that in that game. So he got kind of what was left over between Goodrich and uh, Tyson Bell. So now he gets traded over to a team where I think it'll be even harder for him moving forward to to be a part of that active game day roster and to get playing time because he goes over to a team in the whips who already have guys like Matt Abbott and Charlie Hayes listed at D mid plus they picked up Nick Manis out of the player pool who's seen as as somewhat of a two-way mid can play either side of the ball so really for me the only time that I saw Hogan getting playing time with this Cannons team had he not been traded was if it was towards the end of the year and they get eliminated from potentially eliminated from playoff contention and really they're just battling for that seventh spot and they say yeah you know what it it couldn't hurt to give him a shot and see what he can do because if we're in seventh or eighth place at this point there's not really much worse that we could do there's not really much else that we can try at this point so even just making this trade really I think what it does is more so allowed the cannons to have an extra spot on that 25-man roster to be able to play with and be able to go out and make other moves which they did end up doing and I'll get to in a second but this was really the whole Hogan thing I wasn't really much of a fan of it from the very beginning and and I did have people uh, hitting me up on Twitter at Stevie Mac Media is my Twitter handle, and they were saying from that very first day that we found out about him uh, trying to get into the league that oh you got to give him a chance you know he he hasn't even shown what he can do yet hasn't even made a team yet and I would agree with all of that right I would agree with all of that I'm not saying that you're wrong I did want to wait and see how this played out but just from that first initial reaction. I said straight out, this is more about them promoting the league and promoting their teams and getting more fans outside of the lacrosse community that they already have their attention, getting those people outside the lacrosse community to to have a reason to pay attention to the league and to watch the league. Because if you look on Twitter, back when this was announced, you had 
fans of the NFL, fans of the Patriots or whoever else Hogan played for saying, yeah, this is interesting to me. I'm going to want to pay attention to see if he actually does make a team. Right, So they achieved what they were trying to do by bringing him into the league and bringing outside potential fans to, to the sport of lacrosse and to the PLL itself. But really, outside of that, it, it didn't really do much else for me. Like It wasn't one of those things where I said, man, whoever is getting Chris Hogan is getting an absolute stud. No, I didn't, I didn't really believe that. But like I said, one thing that the trade did do was opened up a spot for the Cannons to be able to go out and make other moves. They also released Max Tuttle to the player pool and picked up Jamie Trimboli from the Redwoods Reserve Squad while also signing Christian Cuccinello from the player pool as well. So again, they've made a couple moves here in the last week or so to try and change their season around from going one and four the first half of the year. So the moves that they've made now to kind of recap what Sean Quirk's done here the last week or two is he's cut Tommy Kelly and signed Peyton Smith. That happened about a week ago now. He trades Simino and Hogan for Reisman from the Whip Snakes. And then he cuts Tuttle to sign Cuccinello and Trimboli to fill out the roster. So again, making a ton of moves to try and change the course of their season, try to bounce back from what was a a tough first half of the season. Because again, they're one and four, but as we've talked about, they've lost three of those four games by one goal each. So they're right there but you just need a little something to to change those games in your favor to try and turn your season around. Now, will these moves do that? I don't know. Again, kind of like with the with the Hogan thing, you kind of have to wait and see how it all plays out. But at least they're making moves, whereas other teams, I think, are more so opting to go with the guys that they have and just hope that they can grind out a few more wins moving forward. But no, Quirk's come out and he's made these moves trying to to put together a roster that can really spark something, really get something going. And a lot of that, I think... As you can tell by the moves that he's made, a lot of that comes starting at the faceoff position, being able to win faceoffs where I believe they're currently 7th or 8th in the league in faceoff percentage. Um, but like I said at the top of the show, I also want to get into very quickly the all-star players being announced and the captains as well are going to be Grant Amon and Blaze Reardon for the all-star game. I've got a couple players that I think were snubbed more specifically as starters, not snubbed from the all-star game itself because they will be there, but I think more specifically just being snubbed as starters and One thing that I'll say about all-star games in general that I've never really cared for is the fact that they're largely just popularity contests more so than actually putting a guy in that deserves to be there. Not not, Not that many of these guys didn't deserve to be there because I think that the players that were chosen were chosen correctly and they deserve to be there, obviously. But one thing that I'll say is I think that a lot of times when you look at all-star games, people tend to vote for players that they like or for guys that play for teams that they like or that they root for who may not necessarily deserve it more so than somebody else, but they're solely voting for these these people because they, they play for a team that they root for. But again, like I said, I think when you look at who made it in the PLL, there's very few guys that I think you can question 
why they made it over somebody else that maybe was a little more deserving. So my two guys that I want to highlight specifically that did make it, but I think deserved to be highlighted as starters in the all-star game are Adam Gittleman and Joe Nardella. I mean, when you look at a guy like Nardella, there's no excuse why he isn't one of the two starters opposite TD Erland. I mean, he has, when you look at a guy that the, the other guy that is one of the starters in Trevor Baptiste, I love Trevor Baptiste. I love the Atlas. I love him. I think he's one of the better faceoff guys in the league, which statistically he is, but is he one of the top two? No. And I don't really think that right now he is. He's definitely made some ground on guys like Nardella and TD Erland, but he's still not a part of that top two, which is why I didn't vote for him as one of my top two. But again, still a, a fantastic player and definitely deserving of being one of those four guys at the All-Star game. But when you look at him compared to a guy like Nardella, Nardella has three more face-off wins than Baptiste on two less attempts, and he has four more points than Baptiste, and his face-off percentage is three points higher. So again, not saying Baptiste doesn't deserve to be one of the four there, but I I don't think that he should be one of the top two, which he is. And while we're at it, while we're talking about the face-off position with this All-Star game, how did Stephen Kelly and his 47% face-off percentage get in over a guy like Connor Farrell, who's at 50%, has more ground balls, and is at least top four in the PLL at his position right now, where if you look at the PLL website and the top five face-off guys, now granted one of them is Reisman and he's only taken six total face-offs, but when you look at that top four, top five, where's Stephen Kelly on that list? You know, how did he make it in over a guy like Farrell, who's statistically playing at a higher level than he is right now? And that's where I go back to sometimes you vote for a guy just because he plays for the team that you like or that you support. And he's not necessarily one of those top guys at his position. Now, when you look at Gittleman, Gittleman's been absolutely dominant this year when he's actually played. And I think that the only reason that he's not a top five goalie on the PLL website statistically is because of the fact that Chris Bates has messed with him and his playing time this year, where you look back to, I believe it was week two, he opted not to play him until the second half of that game against the Water Dogs, and then sat him for the entire game in uh, week four this past weekend against the Chrome in a game that they eventually lost. Now, would would he have made much of a difference in that game? Maybe not, because they still did have more than enough opportunity to win with Drew Adams and, and who they had out there on Friday night. So do I think that he would have made a ton of difference in that game? Probably not, but I just... I don't understand with how he's played when he's played, how you don't just run with him until the wheels fall off at this point, because if they did that, he would easily be probably one of the top two goalies in the league right now, next to blaze Reardon, who, as I said, is going to be one of those all-star captains. But one final thing I'll say to wrap up this segment is that when you look at the Atlas, the Atlas actually put five players in the All-Star game this year. And whether I think Baptiste should be a starter or not, like I said, I still think he deserved to make that uh, top four heading to the All-Star game. But the Atlas also put in Jeff Teat, Brian Cosfield, Danny Logan, who I thought was a bit of a, I don't know if I'd say surprise, but... After the way he looked in that first game against the Archers, 
I was really worried about how he would rebound from that and how he would develop those next couple weeks. But he has been a very, very good D-mid for this team. And I'd say probably in the last three or so games has been one of the better D-mids in the entire league their past couple games. So he has really rebounded well from that tough game against the Archers in week one, as I think has the rest of the Atlas team. But they also put in Tucker Durkin as well. But I'm surprised one of the guys that didn't make it for this Atlas team was Cade Van Raphorst. But I'll talk more about him and the Atlas as a whole when we get into segment two. Segment two, I said at the top of the show, I want to talk about the Atlas and their blueprint for how to win without Jack and Cannon. So we'll get to that in segment two in just a moment. But you're listening to Taking the Field with Stevie Mack. All right, welcome back. Taking the field with Stevie Mac. Segment two of three in a loaded show for you guys heading into week five in the PLL. I mentioned before the break, segment two is going to be all about the Atlas's blueprint playing without Jack and Cannon, how they can win down the stretch without him. If he is, in fact, going to miss significant time due to his groin injury, we're not sure what the extent of that injury is necessarily, but Really, when you look at it, I mentioned on Monday's show, the Atlas are averaging just over 14 points per game over their last three or so games. And that's the most in the league during that span. So in their last three weeks or so, they are the highest scoring offense by average in the league. And in their last three games, more specifically, their score differential is plus six, which is good for tied for second in the league during that stretch with the chaos, ironically, who they have to play this Saturday. And it's second to only the archers who have a plus seven differential in those same three games. So for reference here, how good the Atlas offense has been these past couple games, the Whipsnakes have a minus eight differential, largely due to the differential that they had against the Chrome and the water dogs are minus 12 in that same stretch. And Trevor Baptiste, like I said, definitely deserving of being an all-star this year in his last three games is averaging just under 17 faceoff wins per game. He's at 59% during that stretch and averaging eight ground balls per game. So again, playing at a very, very high level and the only players better during that span are two of the other guys that also made the all-star team in Joan Ardella and TD Erland. Now, defensively, they've played pretty well recently in those last three or so games, giving up 13 points over their last three. I should say on average over their last three. And Rex Road, in the one game where you really looked like they didn't play very well defensively, Rex Road held Lyle scoreless in that game against the Cannons. And I don't know if I said this on a previous episode or not. Maybe I tweeted this out at Stevie Mac Media. But when you go back and watch that game against the Cannons, the Cannons actually benefited from several lucky bounces going their way. Things like a, a scrum for a ground ball, the ball shoots out towards the crease, and, and a guy like Andrew Q or Ryan Drenner is literally just standing on the crease waiting for the ball to come to him. And then they just turn around and, 
and shoot it past Kincannon, or a couple times they hit the pipe, hit Kincannon in the back, and then it bounced back into the net. So you go back and look at that game. The game actually wasn't, I think, as close as what the final score indicated because the Cannons really benefited from some lucky bounces that the Atlas didn't receive, right? Um, so the defense, like I said, I think has played pretty well, held the Chrome to 10 goals for a team that was really starting to to gain some confidence, gain some momentum after their previous few games. And they held the Whipsnakes to 12 goals in a game that went to overtime. So again, another performance where even in a loss, I felt pretty good about the way that they had played. But when you look at some of the individuals within this defense, guys like Rex Road and uh, Cade Van Raphorst combined have 20 caused turnovers, 26 ground balls, and two points, the two points both coming from Cade Van Raphorst. But even just looking at guys like Durkin has five caused turnovers and 11 ground balls. And Craig Chick has five cause turnovers and 17 ground balls. So this defense is actually playing very, very well. And that's just talking about some of their polls on this team. Again, like I said, a guy like Danny Logan in his past two or three games has been, in my opinion, one of the better short stick D mids in the league as of late. So this defense really starting to gain some confidence in front of Jack Kincannon. And that's going to need to be the case this weekend against a chaos offense that's starting to to put some things together, start to get some momentum going, and being able to play well in front of whether it's Tate Boyce or J.D. Colarusso in replacing Jack Kincannon. But again, like I said, the defense should play well enough in front of whichever one it is, whether it's Colarusso or Boyce on Saturday to give them a chance to win that game because offensively, one of my buddies on Twitter, Michael Ramirez, said before that it's really a pick-your-poison offense with this Atlas team. I mean, there's so many ways that they can beat you, and right now they're really utilizing the two-man game to their advantage, whether it's taking it to X with guys like Law and Crawley, two-man game off the wing with guys like Caraway and Baccaro. Up top, they can go with Teton Cockerton. So again, using that same two-man game style, but doing it on different areas of the field with with different pairings, as I just went through, you know, Law, Crawley, Caraway, Baccaro, T. Cockerton, whoever, being able to utilize those matchups to create the kind of offense and create the kind of looks that they want. I've mentioned it in past episodes. They can also carry their man to X and isolate from their one-on-one. Usually it's a guy like Law that does it. Sometimes we've seen Jeff T. do it late in possessions. Or in the past two games, we've seen their middies having some success dodging from up top. Something that I said last year was one of the the Achilles heels of this offense was their inability to dodge from the midfield. But now you're seeing guys like Costabile and even Romar Dennis really succeeding in that dodging role from up top. And they're also, believe it or not, the tied for first in the league in two-point goals with, again, ironically, the chaos with six. So there's going to be shots coming from everywhere in a Saturday's game. Probably a lot of two-point attempts being taken as well. These goalies are going to be in for a long game seeing some of the shots that these teams are going to get off. But my only issue for Saturday is that 
from an Atlas perspective. My only issue for Saturday against the Chaos is that they have the number one statistical goalie in Blaze Reardon and the number three statistical defense, giving up less than 12 scores per game against. Now, on the flip side to that, some things that I can can feel good about as an Atlas fan going to that game is that the Chaos are last offensively, they're seventh in faceoffs and and penalty kill, although to go against that, the Atlas are just one for seven on the man up this year, and the Chaos are just ahead of them in a, in a power play at two for seven, so neither team really converting at a high level on their extra man opportunities so far this season. But I think just to kind of wrap this segment up, that the Atlas team has a different feel to it than what we felt after week one against the Archers. They they competed against the Whipsnakes a few weeks ago. The, they outshot the Cannons while also eliminating Lyle from that game. They took down a confident Chrome team that had been that had beaten back-to-back number one teams. And the Chaos game this weekend, I think, will feel similar to me as it did with the Chrome, where the Chaos have won back-to-back games. They're looking to build some momentum. They're trying to make a push towards the playoffs. And the Atlas, I think, if they go out there and take care of business and control the things that they can control, they will be able to win this game, I think, even without Jack and Cannon. And a lot of that's going to start at the stripe with Baptiste going up against Max Adler. But we got one more segment to get to. I'm going to get your thoughts in the mix heading into week five in the PLL. Plus, like I said at the top of the show, I'm going to very briefly dissect the inside lacrosse week four power rankings. I gave mine on Monday's episode, so I'm going to break theirs down very briefly to round out the show. But you're listening to Taking the Field with Stevie Mack. All right, final segment of the show on Taking the Field with Stevie Mack as we make our way towards week five in the PLL. We've broken down a ton so far in this episode, talking the Cannons and Whip Snakes trade from earlier this week. We've also gotten into the Atlas without Jack Cannon, plus talked a little bit of all-star voting. Now we're going to wrap it all up with your thoughts heading into week five, plus the inside lacrosse power rankings after week four in the PLL. So Michael Ramirez on Twitter at Stevie Mac Media is my Twitter handle. He says, Hope the Atlas can stay hot and overcome losing our leader in the cage. Woods and Whips about to be another dog fight, and I honestly think the Friday night game will set the tone for the weekend. Two of the worst teams looking for a win think that game will be seriously intense. Yeah, I mean, I talked about it in segment two. There is hope for the Atlas without Jack Kincannon. There are ways that they can win on Saturday without having him play in that game. A lot of it starts at the stripe, like I said before the break, with uh, Baptiste going up against Max Adler. It also depends on whether or not the offense can stay hot and pick their matchups, you know, pick their poison, like like I mentioned in sec- segment two, and being able to put points on the board to support whether it's Tate Boyce or J.D. Colarusso. And the defense has to continue trending in that upward direction and really continuing to mesh and play well together as a unit, whether it's, you know, Van Raphorst, Durkin, Rex Road, Newbold, Plass, Schick, 
whoever, even some of the short sticks like Danny Logan and, and Jake Richard, whoever it is, they need to continue playing at a high level as a defensive unit to support whoever is getting the nod in the cage on Saturday against the Chaos. He said, Woods and Whips is about to be another dogfight. Yeah, that's a game where historically that has been a very good game to watch. They've gone to overtime a couple times in their history of this matchup. It's always within a goal or two when it comes down to it. So yeah, I think that it'll be another installment of a good game, you know, another addition to that series that is going to be an instant classic. And he says Friday night game will be, will set the tone for the weekend. Yeah, I think that's been the case throughout this season has been that Friday night game really sets the tone for the weekend, whether you want to look back to week three in Baltimore with the whip snakes and Atlas going to overtime there, whether you want to look at week four with the Chrome beating the archers and winning their second game against a number one team at the time. Yeah. The, that first game has definitely set the tone for some of these PLL weekends in the past couple weeks. So I would expect that that would be the case again this week. He says, no one wants to finish last. The Dogs and Cannons both play twice this weekend. Neither team will want to finish the weekend 0-2. The Archers need to bounce back after last week, and the Chrome got the Dogs. They handle business that should be a win, but this year you never know. Yeah, that last line is is more true now than I think it was even at the beginning of the year. Is With this league and this year in particular, you never know what's going to happen on a game-to-game base on a game-to-game basis, excuse me. But he says, no one wants to finish last. Yeah, and right now you're seeing the Cannons and the Water Dogs battling it out to see which one of them can avoid missing the playoffs this year. And yeah, like he says, they both play twice this weekend. No one wants to go 0-2, much like the Archers did a week ago. But if one of them does go 0-2 on the weekend, that to me, in my mind, is basically it for their season. Whichever one, if either one does go 0-2 this weekend, and I don't actually know offhand if, if they play each other this weekend, but... If one of them goes 0-2 in my mind, that's that's basically it for their season. I don't see how you can bounce back from that with just about two games remaining at that point on your schedule to be able to make it out of that eighth place spot. So yeah, if one of them does go 0-2 this weekend, that's basically going to be it for them. And now you're talking about the other seven teams with with that other team kind of sitting there on the side that nobody's really paying attention to now. And he says, as for the chaos, they need Adler to show that last week wasn't a fluke, but had but had to do so by taking on Baptiste. Yeah, that's going to be a really good matchup this weekend to watch for in that game is can Adler push forward after the performance that he had a week ago? against the water dogs because again like I said on on Monday's episode he had a good had a good game from the stripe but you also have to take it with who he was doing it against which was the water dogs who aren't much better at facing off than uh or I'm sorry it was the cannons that they played the cannons who who haven't been much better at the stripe this year than the than the chaos so now he has to go out and prove that last week wasn't a fluke against a team like the atlas who have Trevor Baptiste who is top 3 top 4 in the league 
at facing off this year. So a big challenge coming up for Adler at the stripe and Baptiste as well. You know, I think those two will definitely battle it out on Saturday afternoon in that game. And I think that that, again, will go a long way to determining which side wins that game. Coach Shrek on Twitter, again, at Stevie Mac Media is my Twitter handle. You can hit me up there for all PLL-related topics and discussion. He says, whatever I expect to happen this weekend is more than likely not going to happen this weekend with the way things have gone so far this season. Yeah, like I said with uh, Michael's comment, we really don't know from a week-to-week or game-by-game basis what's actually going to happen this year. I mean, we can we can predict who's going to win each matchup. We can talk about those types of things, but we don't actually know what's going to happen. Like, I don't think two weeks ago many people would have predicted that Michael Rexrode holds Lyle Thompson without a goal for just the second time in his pro career. Like, we don't know what is going to happen in this league. I don't think many people expected the the Chrome to beat the Whip Snakes the way that they did that one game and then follow it up the following week, the very next game, and, and take down the Archers the way that they did in that game either. So again, we don't know what's going to happen, and, and that's what makes this league so much fun to be a part of, is that you can't predict what's going to happen. You just have to, to watch it and, and see what happens as it plays out right in front of our eyes. But Shrek says, I understand the need to make moves to get over the hump and win a game. However, I was scratching my head seeing them trade Simino. And I thought he was having a decent season battling at the faceoff X. Not sure if Reisman is the answer, but let's give him a shot. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the Cannons and the Chaos were two of the worst teams in the league in terms of faceoff percentage. So I think there was a need, and I said this after they picked up Peyton Smith, there was a need, I think, to make a few changes there to try and spark something at the stripe. And whether it was trading away Simino as well, in addition to picking up Smith, I don't know. I'm not sure how much of an improvement a guy like Reisman will be for them. But again, just like I just said, we don't know what's going to happen. We have to let it play out during the course of a during the course of a, a weekend. So I'll be watching that on this weekend as we head towards week five in the PLL to see how the Cannons do facing off this weekend. But he says, hate to see Redwoods lose Trimboli, but I think they need more depth at midfield behind Rabel, Busick, and Rafis. Obviously, they, in this case, being the Cannons. And yeah, I think that he will definitely help them, especially after they they cut Max Tuttle. I think adding a guy like that behind Rabel, Busick, and Rafis will definitely give them that kind of depth that they need moving forward and I think help out their attack a little bit more. And again, take some pressure off guys like Rabel to to be as productive as as what he's been, although I, I hope moving forward he continues that level of production. But yeah, I think anytime you can add a young piece to your midfield like Trimboli, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad way to go, especially when he was there for the taking and you essentially give up nothing in order to get him the way that they did. But to round out the show this week, like I said, a loaded episode for you guys heading into week five in the PLL out in uh, Minnesota. I want to get to this inside lacrosse week four power ranking. I gave you my power rankings on Monday's episode. But to get to inside lacrosse's rankings, they have the Whipsnakes, number one. No argument there. Number two, though, they have the Atlas. They flip-flopped the Archers and the Atlas this week. Atlas up to number two. 
I like the way that the Atlas have been trending, but I think two is a bit high for me at this point. If they win this weekend and maybe the Archers lose this weekend, or maybe they don't look necessarily all that convincing in a win, then maybe I can get behind putting the Atlas at two. But I believe on Monday's episode, I had them flipped at two and three. Uh, number three, they have the archers. Like I said, I can get with this after the way they looked last weekend and, and losing those two games, but I still got to go with them at number two. Like I said, I could change my mind on Monday's episode, depending on how things shake out this weekend, but I got to go in my mind with archers at two and Atlas at three. Number four, they have the Chrome though. And while Chrome did beat those back-to-back number ones, they're still two and three overall on the year. So I think four might be a tiny bit high for them. I'd probably have them more around five or six, I think. Number five, they have the chaos. This is probably the highest I'd go with the chaos right now. I think for me, they're more around number six, in my opinion, with the cannons and water dogs just behind them. But number six, they have the redwoods. The Redwoods are, I will, I will make this defense for inside lacrosse for putting the Redwoods this low because I believe I had them somewhere around three or four on Monday's episode, but I will say this in defense of their decision to put the Redwoods at number six, the Redwoods are one and two in their last three games. So not necessarily trending in a positive direction and their win in that stretch was against the seventh place water dogs. And that game was a shootout. It was 1916. It's not like you went out there and just dominated the water dogs from start to finish. It was a back and forth battle that you had to come out on top in the last couple minutes. So yeah, I, I, I can see why you would put the Redwoods this low at this point in the season, but still I got to believe they're somewhere around four or five, you know, a few places higher than where inside lacrosse has them. But number seven, they have the cannons and I can agree with this. This is where I had the cannons on Monday's show because I don't think that their one and four record necessarily reflects who they are as a team and who I think they will be moving forward. But again, you can't ignore the fact that they're one and four even with three of those losses being by one goal. And then the Water Dogs at number eight. Again, I can agree with this. This is where I had them on Monday's episode. They really just haven't shown me a lot this season to say that they deserve to be any higher than than last place because you look at the defense. The defense has been, I guess, atrocious would be a, a word to describe it. As in their last two games, they're giving up 18 scores per game, 18 points per game, whatever you want to call it. Their offense has been inconsistent for much of the year, scoring seven, eight goals against the Archers and then scoring 16 the next week against the Redwoods. And the goalie play has just been basically awful, right? A guy like Dylan Ward in the cage has been, has been not good. They're, they're last in, I believe, goalie play in the PLL. So yeah, the, the cannons and the water dogs are where they are for, for a reason. And I, I can't disagree with either of those. But like I said, I, I do 
question a few placements of some of the teams on their power rankings, and it'll be interesting to see where they have some of these teams after things shake out in week five. But that'll do it for this episode of Taking the Field with Stevie Mack. Make sure to like, comment, and share on this post. You can also find the podcast anywhere you get your podcast. I even added a whole list of them to the website, takingthefield.com, so you can find many of the locations of the podcast there to check out any and all past, present, and future episodes of Taking the Field with Stevie Mack. But that'll do it for me as we head into week five in the PLL. I will talk to you guys later.